seen such things. Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Travailed is an old English word for a, a woman being in labor. And what we're getting here is another picture, another image. It's an image of giving birth, a woman giving birth, but the baby coming before she enters into labor, or even as soon as she enters into labor. Every mom in the house can attest that is not the usual order of things, right? But God is not in the business of doing the usual or the ordinary. God is in the business of doing the impossible. And so what he is describing here is that which is supernatural. He's saying, I'm going to cause a birth, and that birth is going to happen at lightning speed. And the birth is not the birth of a baby. It's the birth of a land. It's the birth of a nation. Some believe that this is a description of the rapture. Remember, Jesus described in Matthew 24, Matthew 24, verse 8, that the tribulation is like birth pangs, another old English word, intense birth pains. What Jesus is saying there is that in the same way that a woman goes through travail, goes through painful labor before the joy of a birth, the world will go through very painful labor before Jesus brings the kingdom, before the joy of the birth of God's kingdom coming to this planet. And so some say that Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 and 8, which I just read, is prophesying about how Christ will spare the church the labor pains of the tribulation. In other words, he will rescue her from the wrath of those seven years. It's true that the church will be spared the wrath of the tribulation, but this verse is not teaching that. Verses 7 and 8 are not teaching that for two reasons. Number one, the church is a mystery. It was a mystery in the Old Testament, which is to say it was concealed by the Old Testament or, or by God from the Old Testament believers, including the Old Testament writers. God concealed the reality that there would be a church age, that the Jewish Messiah would have a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. That reality was concealed since the beginning of the foundation of the world through the entire Old Testament. And it is only when Jesus utters those words in his earthly ministry that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is only then when we start to get a glimpse of the mystery of that which he concealed from the Old Testament believers, including having concealed it from Isaiah. The church can be found in the Old Testament only if you go to a New Testament passage, and that New Testament passage says the Old Testament verse prophesied the church. Only if you can find a New Testament passage which we did not that long ago in Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2, we saw that Romans 10, in Romans 10, Paul cited Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2 for the proposition that he, that Paul was, a, 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 was engaging in ministry to church-age believers. He relied on the Old Testament passage, the first two verses of chapter 65, for that statement 
And so Paul was saying that those first two verses of chapter 65, as we studied not that long ago, Paul was saying that those prophesied about the church, even though Isaiah didn't know about it when he wrote it. But unless you can find a passage in the New Testament that says that the Old Testament is prophesying about the church, like Romans 10, unless you can find a passage like that, it's not prophesying about the church. And a Romans 10 is very, very rare. Very rarely do you find a passage like Romans 10. It may, in fact, be even the only one. So reason number one why verses 7 and 8 of chapter 66 are not prophesying about the church, about how Jesus will remove the church from the planet to spare the church from the wrath that is to come. Reason number one is because the church is not prophesied in the Old Testament unless you find a New Testament verse, and we don't find a New Testament verse that says that verses 7 and 8 are referring to the church. Reason number two, which is perhaps the more obvious one, is that the verse specifically references Israel. Chapters 7 and 8 specifically reference Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And here Zion is being referred to as the capital. Jerusalem is the capital of the land of the Jews. And so Zion is referred to as the capital. It's a way of saying the whole nation. We don't do this that much in the United States because we're here. But when you're abroad, you might say Washington. Right? So like, like uh, in Costa Rica. Costa Rica, they don't have a military because they were worried about coups, generals coming in and, and creating a, a revolution like their neighbors in Nicaragua or Venezuela. And they're, you know, they're, they're very proud about not having a military. And you ask them, well, what would you do if, if somebody invaded you? And you kind of get this pregnant pause. And they say, well, we'd call Washington. Right? I mean, they, and when they say Washington, they mean America. They say, we, we, we'd ask Washington to come send the Marines. It's that way, that's how Zion is being used here in our verses, to refer to all of Israel, because Zion is another way of saying the capital of the nation. So what's happening in these two verses is God is saying, I'm going to cause the birth of Israel as a nation, and I'm going to do it at lightning speed. This is going to happen in the end times when God will cause the birth of the millennial Israel. Israel will need to be reborn or reestablished because she will be decimated in the tribulation. Her population will be decimated. The Israel that exists today will be destroyed. It will not exist by the end of the tribulation. The vast majority when I say destroyed, I mean, I mean the population. The population of the Israel that exists today, most of it will be destroyed, the vast majority of it. And there will be two people who destroy it in the tribulation. One a Gentile and one a Jew. Let me talk about the Gentile first. The Gentile is the Antichrist. The Antichrist will begin the tribulation by entering into a peace treaty with Israel. And midway through the tribulation, through the seven-year period, he will break the treaty and he will begin a persecution of persecutions, a, a persecution that makes the Holocaust look small. It will be a Holocaust of Holocausts 
you read about this in Daniel 9, verse 27, where the prophecy says, and he will make a firm commitment. This is referring to the Antichrist. The Antichrist will make a firm covenant, I should say, with the many for one week. One week has seven days in it. One week is a way of saying the seven-year period. And you get seven years unpacked in even more detail with more specificity in the book of Revelation. Here it just refers to a week, which is another way of saying seven years. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now the Hebrew there, just like the English, is kind of stilted, but it's kind of, you know, kind of staccato-like. I'm, I'm taking us to Daniel 9, 27, really for the focus of the end of the verse. The Antichrist is the one who makes desolate. Antichrist persecution of Israel will be against the nation, the nation that was formed in 1958, and Jews everywhere in the entire world. He will attempt what Iran desires to do today, which is, in their words, to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. His objective has, has always been the objective of all anti-Semitism is to invalidate the promises of God. You see, if there are no Jews, then God is either inept or impotent. He's either inept, unable to fulfill His promises, impotent, doesn't have the power to fulfill His promises, or he's worse, he's a liar. All those promises that he made to Israel will not and cannot be fulfilled if there are no Jews. This is why the objective of the Antichrist will be to eradicate the Jewish race. It will be satanically energized, just like anti-Semitism today is demonically energized. But of course, God will preserve the remnants. He will preserve a Jewish remnant as he always has Daniel 12 1 now at that time Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people don't miss that don't miss that the archangel himself guards Israel the archangel himself guards the people of the covenant the people of Israel they will not be eradicated because God has assigned Michael the archangel to, to guard them. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress, distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book will be rescued. It's not all Jews who will be rescued. Paul says that the true Jew is the one who is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also a descendant not just racially of them, but a descendant spiritually of them. That's the true Jew. And so here you see in Daniel 12 that only believing Jews will be rescued. That's the Gentile. The Gentile who will decimate the population of Israel during the tribulation. But then there's a Jew who will do it. There's a Jew who will decimate the current population of Israel, 
and he will do it at the end of the tribulation, before the millennium begins. That Jew has a name. His name is Jesus. Jesus will do the destruction. First, he will come and destroy the enemies of Israel who are gathered, the enemy armies that are gathered at Armageddon. Then he will judge the survivors of the tribulation, all those who survived the horrible seven years. It's called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus will allow only believers to enter into his thousand-year reign. He will remove all unbelievers, whether they are Gentiles or Jews, and they will be removed ultimately to be cast into the lake of fire. Matthew 25, verse 31, there Jesus said, But when the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He's talking about him coming to the planet, sitting on a throne on the planet. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one, from one the other, from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king, he's referring to himself, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41. Then he, still Jesus, will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. Two individuals will decimate the population of Israel. First a Gentile, the Antichrist, and then a Jew, a Jew of Jews, Jesus. We're talking about decimating the unbelieving part of Israel. That's what Jesus will do. The Antichrist will, will, will persecute Jews indiscriminately. Jesus will remove only unbelieving Jews. And the prophet Zechariah tells us exactly how much of the population of Israel will be removed, will be lost during the time period of the tribulation. Zechariah 13.8. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that Two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. So two-thirds of all Jews will perish in the tribulation. Some of them will be believers. Some of them will be unbelievers. When Jesus returns, he will only remove unbelieving Jews. One-third will be spared and will enter the millennium. These are the Jews who believe during the tribulation. Remember, we're not here. Those Jewish believers who are in Israel today, will not be here during the tribulation. All believers will be removed at the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4. So then the seven years, part of the reason why the seven years is so horrible, is there aren't believers, at least the beginning of the seven years. And then as time goes on during those seven years, people will believe, Jews will believe, so that one-third of, of the Jewish race that still exists at the end of the tribulation, those will all be believers who believed during those seven years. Many of them will be brought to salvation by the 144,000 
evangelist that John speaks of in the book of Revelation. That one-third Jesus will use to quickly birth the nation of Israel without labor pains or, or immediately at the time of labor, labor pains, like that. The one-third will be the first citizens of the millennial Israel. This is what Paul means in Romans eleven twenty six 26 when he says all Israel will be saved. That doesn't mean every single Jew will be saved. That means when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he means that only believing Jews will enter the millennium. All Jews that enter the millennium will be spiritually saved and will be physically saved. Both. Verse 9 of chapter 66 of Isaiah reads like this. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says your God? These are rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions that demand a negative answer. Of course, God is not in favor of terminating a pregnancy. Of course, God is not. That, that, that's a euphemistic way of saying abortion, right? When someone doesn't want to say abortion and they want to kind of sugarcoat it, they say, terminate the pregnancy. They mean abortion. Of course God is opposed to that. God is in the business of life. God is the author of life. It is the devil who's the author of death. And so as sure as God creates life and brings forth a birth from a mother, he will cause the birth of, millennial, of the millennial Israel. That's what's being referred to here in this verse. This is the regathering. It's the regathering of the remnant of Israel. The most, some argue, the most frequently promised promise in the entire book of the Bible. The most frequently promised statement in the entire book of the Bible, some argue, if it's not the most, it's, it's, it's very frequent. That's the regathering. You see it in the beginning of the law where there are blessings and curses that God gives to the people of Israel. The last curse for disobedience, remember in the, 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 the law, the Mosaic law, which is another way of saying the Mosaic covenant, the covenant is pretty straightforward. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And that's described in Leviticus 26. It's described in Deuteronomy 28. And at the end of Deuteronomy 28, the last of the curses is, I will rip you from the land, God says, to his people. And I will scatter you among the nations. But once you return to me, then I will call you home. You see this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. So it shall be when you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Remember, God's speaking to Israelites. He's not talking to Gentiles. He's not talking to, to Americans or to, to Chinese. I mean, he's, he's talking to the land, to the people of Israel. It shall be when you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today you and your sons, then the Lord your God will have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. 
When Joshua led the people into Israel, remember, it's the land of milk and honey. When David reigned Israel, great prosperity. When King Uzziah reigned Israel, a godly king, great prosperity. But that prosperity is nothing compared to the prosperity that Messiah will give to Israel during the thousand-year reign. That's why at the end of verse 5 here, it says, multiply your, your prosperity more than your father's. God's rebirth of Israel is the regathering. That's what's being referred to here in chapter 66. The birth of the nation is the regathering of the people of Israel, believing Israel, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, where God, God removes the goats and He keeps the sheep. And in that judgment, it's not just Gentiles, it's also believers. It's also Jewish. It's not just Gentile believers, it's also Jewish believers that are in the, in the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And so when God, when Jesus, God in the flesh, does that judgment at the end of the tribulation, and he takes the one-third of Israel that's remaining, it's that group of individuals who are the regathering and who are the rebirth of the nation that is being referred to in chapter 66. Look at verse 10. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. There's been mourning over Israel because God brought punishment and suffering upon Jerusalem because of her rebellion. The prophet described this with very figurative language back in chapter 5. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. In chapter 5, Isaiah, like elsewhere in the book, portrays Israel as a vineyard, as God's precious vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, reads like this. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. You see what Isaiah is doing there. Who's the speaker? It's Isaiah. And who's he calling my beloved? God. He calls God his dear one, his beloved one. Because the prophet is intimate with God, as we all should be. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. The prophet is saying that God labored for Israel. He created her. He cared for her. He cultivated her people. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of, of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Now the speaker has changed. The speaker's not Isaiah. The speaker's now God. He's addressing Israel. He says, judge what I'm about to explain to you. Verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? Israel came to produce worthless grapes, not because of God's failure to cultivate the vineyard, not because of God's failure to care for the vineyard, but because of her rebellion. Verse 5, So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard, God says. I will remove its hedge 
It's hedge of protection, that is. And it will be consumed. I will break down its walls, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Then Isaiah explains what this imagery represents, in case we hadn't gotten it so far. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. God said he would destroy his vineyard, which is what happened in the Babylonian exile when God summoned Nebuchadnezzar, who he raised up. And then he summons him from across the desert to cross the desert, to go east. In the Middle East, when you go from, from Babylon to Israel, it's not like today where you get in an airplane from Iraq to, to, to the Mediterranean Sea or a train or a bus. No, there's a big desert, so you have to go north. You have to go around. When God summoned <clears throat> excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar from the east, from Babylon, modern-day Iraq, to Jerusalem, they'd go north, around the desert, come south, and then he decimated, destroyed Jerusalem, the wasteland, just like God described in chapter 5 of destroying his vineyard that produced worthless grapes. The destruction of Israel in the Great Tribulation will be much worse than what, ba- what Babylon, what Nebuchadnezzar did to Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The destruction of Israel will happen in the Tribulation in the second half because the first half that the Antichrist is still maintaining his treaty. He doesn't break the treaty until the second half, and then he will make Israel a wasteland. He will bring such persecution to Israel that the people of Israel will have to flee the city. Remember what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus is citing there Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, where the Antichrist creates an abomination of desolation, which is to say he builds an idol in the temple. There's no temple in Jerusalem today, but in the tribulation, that's part of the treaty. The way the Antichrist will get Jerusalem all jazzed up for the treaty and and Israel all juiced up to enter into a, a treaty with Antichrist is he's going to say, I'm going to give you peace. And as part of my goodwill, I'm going to rebuild the temple. So the temple, there is going to be a temple in the seven-year tribulation. And in the middle of the seven years, he's going to break the treaty, and he's going to put up something that is an abomination to Israel. He's going to put up an idol in the temple itself. That's the trigger. Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, that's the trigger. Be watching for that, verse 16. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the, his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. Upon Jesus' return, he will end 
Antichrist's persecution of Israel. Antichrist will be cast into the lake of fire with the beast. Remember, there's the unholy trinity of the devil, Antichrist, and the beast in Revelation. All three make their way into the lake of fire forever. First, the beast and the Antichrist, end of Revelation 19. Then, end of Revelation 20, the third member of the unholy trinity, the devil himself, is cast into the lake of fire. When Jesus returns, he ends the persecution that the Antichrist is doing of Israel. The Antichrist is thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 19. He will gather his flock. He will do the regathering, the remnant of Israel, and then he will commence his kingdom. The time of Israel's suffering at that time will be finished, will be over, and the blessings of the kingdom will begin. It will be an era of rejoicing and gladness. That's what you see in verse 10. You see those two words, rejoicing and gladness. It will be that way for Israel and for the friends of Israel. The friends of Israel are the, the, the people in verse 10 who are described as loving Jerusalem. Those are the people who are the friends of Israel. Remember the scripture describes the kingdom as a party. The scripture describes the kingdom as a celebration, as a banquet. Jesus said this in the parable that he told in Matthew 22 too. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The banquet is a Jewish banquet. And those in attendance are Jews and those who have followed the pattern of Jews when it comes to faith, those who have followed the pattern of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from east and west, that's believing Gentiles, and recline at the table, the banquet table, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are believing Jews, in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a celebration. That's why you see in verse 10 these words of joy and and celebration. Then in verse 11, we get imagery of a newborn being nursed by his mother. That you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. In verse 11, we see that God will cause Israel to be comforted the way a mother comforts her child, the way a mother comforts her child by nursing the child. This reminds us of one of the ancient names of God, El Shaddai, El, two words. El is short for Elohim, and Shaddai means a mother's breast or a mountain. Alan P. Ross, Alan P. Ross who's a, um, a, a Hebrew scholar, an Old Testament scholar, says this about Shaddai. Some scholars suggest that Shaddai is related to the Akkadian word Shadu, that means breast or mountain or both. Some words describing a part of the body were also used for geographical descriptions, like the mouth of a river or the foot of a mountain. So Shaddai, when used of God, refers either to his ability to supply abundantly, the abundant one, or to his majestic strength, the Almighty One. Here in verse 11, we're seeing Shaddai, El Shaddai, sometimes it's translated God Almighty. That's, that's the most common translation. But here, it's not that it's, that the, well, El Shaddai is not in this verse, but the, the concept of 
the name of El Shaddai is what this verse is pointing to. It's pointing towards El Shaddai in terms of the abundant one, the, the one who supplies abundantly in the way that a mother supplies the, the comfort and the nursing for her child. Then we keep reading in verse 12. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip, and fondled on the knees. The Hebrew word for fondled is sha'ah, which means rocking. It's, like, it's the idea of rocking up and down. God is saying here that he's going to dote on Jerusalem. He's going to dote on Jerusalem like a mother dotes on her, her, her young baby, carrying the baby on the hip, rocking the baby on the knee, nursing tenderly the baby. God will give Jerusalem, in verse 12, the wonderful word that she longs for so much, shalom. It says peace. She will be given peace like a river. Shalom is a word that means wholeness, healthiness, completeness, peace. And the nations will bring their glory, the text says, to Jerusalem. This is an act of worship. For many years, the Jews have been raided their wealth has been raided. It's just part of what anti-Semitism, what involves, what's involved in anti-Semitism. You don't see that today in America. We don't, we, don't, we don't have that in America, praise God. But in many eras, the wealth of the Jews has been raided and envied. In this era, in the kingdom, their wealth will be exponentially more than what it is today. Because the Gentiles who in many cases, raided their wealth, will now bring it back, and they will bring it back 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 fold. Not because they're doing it grudgingly. I don't want to bring wealth to Israel. They're doing it joyfully. The nations, the nations, the goyim, another term for, it can be translated nations, it can be translated Gentiles, the goyim will bring their glory, their wealth to Jerusalem, and they will do it joyfully because of worship of Israel's God. This is what we saw in a lot more detail in chapter 16. Then in verse 13, we read this. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. In the same way that God brought judgment upon Israel for her disobedience, he will bring comfort to her and blessing in abundance when she repents, when she turns to him. Notice the four eyes, the four eyes in the text. Verse 9, shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says your God? Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an over." flowing stream. Verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. In the end, everything always makes its way back to God. In the end, everything always makes its way back to God because God is the sovereign. And the sooner that we get that through our heads, the better off we'll be. God is all about himself because he alone is worthy. 
Right? The atheist says, well, that's, that's egotistical. But the one who understands how God reveals himself says, duh, that's obvious that God is all about himself because there's no one like him. There's no one else sovereign. There's no one else holy. There's no one else as humble as God is. Right? God humbled himself and became a man to die for the sins of the world. There's no one else as loving as God. Everything always makes its way back to God. And that will be revealed in powerful ways during the kingdom. Look at verse 14. Then you will see this and your heart will be glad and your bones will flourish like the new grass and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. Those who seek and submit to the God of Israel will receive great blessing from him. The blessing first, of mental health. That's what we're seeing here. That's the Hebrew word lev. Their hearts will be glad. Lev is the word for heart. As we saw on Wednesday, it's the inner person. It's the seat of emotions. It's the place of will, of the will. It's the place of the mind. The modern movement of mental health. You know, you hear a lot about mental health today. Mental health, mental health, mental health. The modern movement of mental health as a huge, gaping hole in it because it doesn't consult the author of the mind it doesn't consult the author of the heart it doesn't consult the author of the will the soul the emotions the modern mental health movement is by and large atheistic or agnostic but rarely does it have anything to do with the one who actually created the mind so how can you have mental health without consulting the author of mental health? And so in the kingdom, beginning with the thousand-year reign, God will create a superabundance of mental health. That's the reference here to their hearts will be glad. Then there's also going to be physical health. Your bones will flourish like the new grass. All right? In the spring, after the cold weather, when the, when the first sprouts of grass spring up, they're beautiful, right? Bright green. They're very attractive. And so here, this description of your bones flourishing like new grass. Bones is a reference to the physical body in the kingdom, as we've seen, as we saw in chapter 65. There will be great health. There will be long, very long lifespans. The kingdom will be characterized with, great, with and by great blessings. That's what God loves to do. That's God's normal behavior is to bless. His rarity is to judge. Does he do it? Absolutely. Does he do it with the same intensity with which he blesses? No question. He will judge, and when he judges, it is fierce. You see the word wrath. The word wrath is, is uh, mentioned many, 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 many times, Old Testament and New Testament. But that's the exception. What God loves to do is bless. He, he, he does judge with, with wrath and fury, but that's the rarity of God. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel says. And so what eternity is characterized by, at least for the believer, is blessing. On top of blessing, on top of blessing. And what we're getting just a glimpse of here is the first phase of that blessing, which is the thousand-year reign. And then that blessing goes on into eternity forever 
and ever. Let's close with that today, and we'll resume next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you enlighten us by it, encourage us by it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.